Good evening. You know, it's not so easy sitting up here. <laughs> I'm aware of and humbled by these teachings. So when I sit here, my challenge is always one of am I is my offer from my experience and from my heart to you. So, you know, you, we, we do a lot of study of the teachings and we read these things and we think we know what they mean and then we have our direct experience. But my prayer when I'm in this seat is that I'm always uh, giving you my experience. And, and, and it's important to me that I offer it in a way that it's, you know, it can be received, knowing that that doesn't always happen. But And just humbled by the density and brilliance of these teachings. And what goes with that is a certain feeling of, ah, what the hell am I talking about? <laughs> and at the same time, the not being able to not talk about it. And um, so there's a humanness about that. But now that I've said that, I'll, I'd like to talk to you about holding on, letting go. How's that? <laughs> so let me start with a story I heard that my sister friend told me here about um, the salt child. And the salt child... Uh, the chow made of salt was desperate to know where she came from. One day she saw the ocean and was drawn to it, compelled to it, drawn to it. She put one foot into the ocean and said, ah, yes. She, she took another step. Ooh, right. Yeah. You can imagine what happened to the salt. <laughs> it's kind of like your walking meditation, you know. <laughs> Sometimes we touch into that place where it's, it's just right there. And you know that it's right there. And this, this story illustrates the softening and release that we can experience when we recognize and return to the truth. So we're drawn to our true nature in that kind of way, these qualities of goodness. Drawn to a retreat on the um, boundless heart. Something might have been compelling for you that moved you in a direction of getting yourself here, of staying here. And it's a deep knowing. It's actually something we're listening to that's deeper than our thoughts about it. Because, you know, there's all that busy activity about how am I going to pull this off and can I get away and do I have the resources and what about my cat? My partner just sent me a picture of the cat and it looked like he was bawling me out through the photograph, where are you? 
But I too had a dream. You know, Martin Luther King wasn't the only one. I had a dream. <laughs> uh, I had a dream in the 80s. I was living in Santa Cruz, California, and I, this was before I got involved or even knew much about Buddhism. So I went to this, you know, in Santa Cruz, California, that's the land of woo-woo. You know, you get all of your, anything alternative, you, you're going to find it there. So it's great for people that are coming into to, um, anything you can imagine. <laughs> so I, I, I was a, a greedy type at the time, you know. I, I, and so I, I, I did just about everything. I had a little yoga, and I did dream workshops, and I did writing workshops, and I, you know. So I stumbled into a yoga <coughs> class, and at the end we were in samadhi, and I had this image of this big round guy sitting on this flower in the middle of this very calm lake. And it was just, it, it, it was a very compelling dream, just like the salt child. And when I looked at the face on this body, it, 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 it kind of looked like my face, but it was a little distorted and I, I couldn't be sure. But it was sitting just really dignified and upright. And it, it actually had a little turn of the, uh, on the end of its lips up a little bit in this really serene <coughs> way. And then moments later, there were these just torrential, torrential uh, storm. And it was like ice and uh, slivers of glass and stones falling out of the sky, just attacking this image. And some of the slivers had little images on the face that I, some of the people I was having some real struggles with. It's like, whoa, just really this, quite the storm. And, uh, and this big guy with my face on it <laughs> managed to sit there through all of that without coming off his seat. And what I remember, what was the most profound thing, was the exhale that I felt in that corpse pose, and then saying, yeah, I think I'll take a dozen of those, please. <laughs> you know, that's what I wanted. Totally pierced my heart. And it would take 10 years later before I got the symbolism of that dream. It's 10 years later that I kind of got that it was the Buddha sitting on the lotus flower in a rainstorm with Mara, you know, I, you know, the Lord of Death, but also the one that supported the Buddha's awakening. So um, we know this truth, this calling. We all have had some taste or touch into something that draws us to that place of deep knowing and seeing. And we may not know exactly what it is or be able to point to it exactly, but we know that gravitational pull that brings us home. So what calls you to practice? What is the, what is your salt child? What, 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 you know, you probably have a story that's been operating for some time that compels you to keep showing up 
in this practice. And I think it has a lot to do with letting go. We feel the call, and at the same time, um, there's this um, solidity that we feel that's so absolute that um, our dualistic mind starts to ask, well, well, you know, I don't know about this letting go business. What's going to hold me? What's going to hold me? If I let go, what will I gain? And what can I be certain of? Where will I land if I let go? And it better be a soft landing, by the way. <laughs> so we want to bargain with this sense of letting go, this sense of um, inevitability. I saw this thing on Facebook that said, if you fall, I'll be there, signed the floor. So how's that for, <laughs> how's that for a landing? So the sense is that if we're going to let go, then we must be letting go into something. But ultimately, we can't really say where we release into. We don't really know that. However, from this body, from this practice, there are some ways that we can have a direct experience of what it feels like to let go. We can know for ourselves. You know, and letting go is not a destination. It's these moment-to-moment -moment experiences that begin to build enough faith inside of you that you can then rely on and say, oh yeah, maybe I can trust that a little bit more. So the questions are for this evening that I want to play with is, what am I holding that keeps me from returning to truth, moment to moment? And how do I let go and take a, a step in the direction of my heart's longing, my, my deep knowing of truth? How do I take a step towards that? So one of the things we want to look at as we begin this is to first check out what is our view. What view are we holding about how we relate to life? Because there's usually assumptions and expectations behind um, how we relate to, to anything. Something's operating. So what view are you holding? View is very powerful. It kind of shapes and influences just about everything we do. But the Buddha taught one thing and one thing only. He had a specialization in his offering that actually contri contributes and complements so many other contemplative practices. He offered us the Four Noble Truths and what Stephen um, Batchelor is calling the Four Ennobling Truths because they ennoble our lives. But I'd like to just speak about these Four Noble Truths a little bit in relationship to uh, holding on and letting go. So the first Noble Truth, we know this, 
is that there is suffering just through the pure, this body sensing, you know, concoction here. There is suffering, there is aging, old age, death, birth, and the big one is not getting what you want. So we know that one probably pretty well. And, you know, the funny thing about this life and this body at this time is that life is always doing this, you know. It just offers you something, moment to moment, day to day. It just makes the offer. It's, it's so impersonal, the dukkha that you get. I mean, it's just, here. in this life, here it is. The offer always stands, and it's always coming. So life can be... Uh, there is suffering in life just through the nature of this domain. So there is a cause to suffering. In the Buddhist teachings, the cause of suffering is clinging, holding tightly to <coughs> what life offers. We hold for a number of reasons. We hold fundamentally, I think, Onto to things in our lives um, is is because we're afraid of death in a, in a really deep kind of way. We're afraid of the letting go that's represented in our physical death. And you've probably heard this saying. It's been out in the community a while. It says, "Life and death were talking," and life said. To death, why does everyone love me and hate you? And death said, because you are a beautiful lie and I am the painful truth. That sense of splitting those two off, like, I'd prefer some life, please, but no, I don't want the death part. You know, that's, that's a fundamental way that we cling that can cause suffering. We also fear the ego death, that part of us that has the degrees and, you know, has the children and has the perfect, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, we suffer the moment we latch on to any form of identity, any solidifying is a source of suffering. And it's a tough one because we, we actually want to clone ourselves, the good parts, for the future. And uh, then we want to avoid going back to anything that we didn't like from the past. But all of that are, are ways of selfing. To, to hold tightly to an identity is to, is to solidify into, or to, to think you are solidifying into a self. So delusion is in some ways, a way that we claim self-identity as reality and we hold on tight to it. And we take our thoughts and our, and our ideas about ourselves as I, me, and mine. We also fear letting go of it all. Even though we know that's a good idea, we, we're afraid to let go of it. One of the reasons I think we're afraid to let go of it is because we are afraid to embrace the feelings of disorientation and groundlessness that is like the precursor 
to freedom. There's this place that we touch into that that where 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 we don't know in a profound way. We feel that disorientation. And we feel the groundlessness of our being, even if it's a glimpse. And that can be very terrifying for us. So we hold on. And it makes sense. So it's our instinct to try to make sense out of things, try, try to know, you know, try to land, and to have that landing be safe. So when you think about it this way, you can see how we have a resistance to both life in the form of our greed, aversion, and delusion, and also death, because it represents a pocket of unknown. So I think we call that damned if you do and damned if you don't. (laughs) Anything we resist accepting and letting go is a cause of is causes suffering. Clinging is a cause of suffering. So what's happening, what this offer is that life dishes out, um, let me find my notes. So what happens with what life dishes out is not the issue. What's happening in our life is not the issue. The issue is our relating to what happens and our attachment to it, our attachment to not liking it, our attachment to wanting it to be different. That's our form. That's our suffering. We believe kind of like a false truth, and that's that it's a delusion that we can hold on when all things are impermanent. So the delusion is thinking that the holding on can can stay. We can actually hold on when it's changing all the time. When we cling, we solidify a self. When we solidify a self, we separate. When we separate, we suffer. And then the Buddha talks about in the third noble truth that we can be free from suffering. And freedom from suffering, from from releasing from suffering is the release of the clinging. It's the letting go. The Buddha said nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. And, you know, so this sense of non-identification is critical and important in these teachings. teachings. Sometimes we can get ourselves concentrated enough where we can really see uh, how this uh, clinging and release can happen. And you've probably had moments of it here and there. I was on a, on a retreat once and got pretty concentrated. It was a long retreat. And um, I was able to see, I I didn't have a lot of charge around the things I was seeing, but there was a clear scene and knowing. First of all, it was this uh, big open sky-like 
experience, this expanse that was a beautiful, beautiful expanse of space and light and a sense of equanimity and calm in it. And then what appeared next was just what looked like trillions and trillions and trillions of tiny little cells or molecules or, you know, I'm not sure what what they were. And once again, some of them had some 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 etchings on it that I could kind of make out. Some of it was a little familiar to me. And 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 what it seemed like to me was that there were these trillions and trillions of you know cells in this skinless body of a sky. That was the expanse. And then I noticed that I took an exhale and the and and it's like the wind blew and all of these things started flying around very softly, very gently. It wasn't a storm at this point. But then a few things settled into a bit of a constellation. It'd be kind of like a like a story, something that looked familiar actually. It's like, oh yeah, I I, I kinda know you. I kinda know that form. I was feeling it in my body as well. It just kind of set there in its concoction. And then with another exhale, it blew away again. And there was a clearing, and that was very calming. And then another constellation formed itself in this vast, skinless body of awareness. It was a marvel of a sitting when I, that was a 45-minute sitting that I've been searching for ever since. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it was it was one of those times when I can see there was clear seeing of how these things come and go, how these formations of experience actually cluster together. There was a sense of them being impersonal. They just kind of. Cluster. It wasn't something I was doing, but there was some familiarity in the construction of this scaffolding that we've been talking about. And the significant here is that um, they didn't stay that, that way. They came and went. The breath is often referred to as the messenger of change. So when we're breathing, we're moving things around. So this sense of knowing and seeing supports letting go, supports release. Knowing and seeing. It's not like you are releasing. It's more like you are creating the conditions for that, um, um, for the winds to blow. So again, Suffering is not the issue. It's how are we relating to these constellations, these aggregates, these, these kind of identifications or these concepts or whatever they might be. How are we relating to um, what appears to be solid when it's truly not? And then the fourth noble truth is that there's a, there's a, there is a path, or how you say it here, there's a path. 
Do I get a gold star? <laughs> There's the Eightfold Path. And, you know, that is a set of um, ethical guidelines and mindfulness practices that teach us how to open our heart-mind, relax into the uncertainty and ambiguity of the moment, hold opposition or the, the delusion or the appearances of opposition in our hearts. And through our practice, we can actually experience a bit of joy from our letting go. So one skillful means that the, that the Buddha offers in um, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the five hindrances. And it's kind of appropriate to talk about that right now, given that, you know, uh, this is a time in retreat when a lot of those things kind of flurry up in our practice, right when we've developed enough calm to then, you know, allow these things to merge for us to see. So there are five of them, and they're referred to as hindrances, things that hinder our clear seeing and our experiences of freedom. So the first hindrance that the Buddha talks about is his sensual um, desire. And it's, it's when we, we lock into one of the five, six, six senses, and we're off and running. And this could be a real tornado of, of mind happening when you sit. It's a lot of excitability and uh, sometimes a sense of urgency and the wanting mind is really intense and leaning forward. Uh, and it has a little greedy quality to it. You know, we want more, we want more. Even if it's this, the wanting more of the Dharma, you know, it, it's that, that impulse, that kind of um, revved up part that we, we can have. And, and the mind's pretty unconcentrated when that's happening. So that's the um, central desire. And any one of our senses, including our thoughts, but our ears, nose, taste, anything can, can kind of, we can get entangled with, hold on to, cling to, and there's some suffering that happens there. And any of these hindrances block our ability to see anything else when we're in them, when we're caught in them. We call it hindrance attacks when we're sitting on the cushion. The second one is aversion and ill will, where we just get pissed off when we sit down. It's just like, you know, where, where did you come from? I thought I was done with you. Or, or, or we feel this surge, this contraction. It almost feels like something needs to pop or some, something needs to come out. Or, you know, there's a, there's a way sometimes that we can feel it very intensely. Not always, but but sometimes there's an edginess to it. And um, we can get mentally fixed on what our agitation is. And, um, and we find ourselves rewinding and rewinding and rewinding the story um, because there's a righteousness in trying to, you know, get it just right in the way we want to see it. So that can be a form of clinging, something we... We, we find ourselves caught in 
and, and latch into. The third one is sloth, which is a lack of physical vitality, and torpor, which is a lack of mental <coughs> vitality. Where there's this kind of inner withdrawal or collapse in our minds, heavy heaviness, heaviness, heavy mentalness, heavy physicalness, a dullness of mind, you know, and not enough energy to really practice. It's just hard to have any concentration at all. And then there's restlessness and worry, where we are wild storms, busyness, busyness, a sense of overwhelm and unrest, sense of being feeling like you're possessed by what's happening. You know, it's like a monkey's on your back. And then the worry part is where we feel like, you know, we're not doing it right. It should be different. We should, you know, we should be able to make this stop. So we get over-identified with these things. And the, the last hindrance is doubt, where we really question, um, why did I come here again? <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, nothing's working here. I don't know about all this stuff. We get tangled up, confused, and unclear, and things get muddied, and we feel discouraged, and... Um, and there's a certain dullness that goes with that. But these are the, <coughs> the hindrances, the things we tend to cling to in our minds that actually um, hinder our ability to see the bigger picture. Because cling, the clinging is a narrow focus. And uh, there's so much more than that, but it, it doesn't feel like that when you're caught in it. The idea is not to get rid of the hindrances because that's what life offers. The idea is how you relate to them. How are you relating to them? So I'd like to offer you some supportive ways, some skillful means of dealing with um, uh, release or this sense of letting go in your practice. And again, to say that the idea is not we find not that we get to some place, some destination that's nirvana, <laughs> but that we are able to recognize when uh, the release uh, happens and we kind of know what, uh, we can pause for that a little bit and, and know that that's good news. So with the hindrances, the Buddha, in your practice, when you're sitting, these, these offers are mostly concentration practices, places where you can focus and anchor your attention and get, get stable enough um, to kind of rest into uh, clear seeing and knowing. It's hard to deal with hindrances if our mind is not concentrated or if we don't have some bit of concentration that we can kind of rest into a little bit. So for sensual desire, 
that sense of um, wanting and the, the kind of greedy mind. One of the things we can do in our practice is to focus on the exhale of the breath. Focus on the exhale of the breath. And you can also contemplate the um, contemplate that all things are impermanent. That could be like a mantra for you. That impermanence is, is um, you know, nothing can be clung to. So we can contemplate, or you can contemplate, or walk with the mantra, even in your walking meditation. Nothing can, can, can be clung to as I, me, or mine. But for the sensual desire hindrance, you want to contemplate impermanence of pleasant feelings. Because when in impermanence, we're going for the, we want the good stuff uh, for sensual desire. So in our contemplation, we can consider that this good stuff that we want is impermanent. Keep that in our mind. And we're focusing again on the exhale. Another practice we can do is to, is a gratitude practice of being appreciative of the goodness that you have in your life already, feeling into uh, all of the ways that you've been blessed, if you will, in your life. And maybe that's not an easy practice for some of you, but it's a useful practice. And the Buddha says that the experience of the release from sensual desire can feel like uh, you're, you're free from debt. So if you want to feel like you're free from debt, <laughs> uh, that's the feeling like it's like, whew, you know, debt-free. Wow. Free from mental hunger, free from the consuming mind. That's what the release feels like. And for aversion and ill will, a practice you can focus on is the exhale. And when I say focus on the exhale, I mean to really see that there's kind of three parts to it. Slowing down and focusing your concentration on the subtleties of the exhale. Where it begins, where's the middle of it, where's the end. Focusing on the exhale. You can contemplate impermanence of unpleasant feelings because when we're hooked by aversion, we don't think it's ever going to be over. But we can remind ourselves that this too is impermanent. And the practice here is a practice of compassion, sending yourself some compassion. Dear, dear, we're going to be okay. It's, it's all right. We've got this. It's all right. Whatever that compassionate voice is for that little one that is hurting. And the release is experienced, the Buddha talks about in the suttas, the release is experienced as being healthy after a long illness. That sense of body release 
after you've been ill for a while and now the illness is no longer there. You can kind of sense that contrast. There's also uh, a sense in that thawing and that release that there's room to be compassionate for others as well. And for sloth and torpor, the focus is on the inhale in your practice because inhales it will bring a certain energy into the practice, into the stillness. And you can also contemplate this. I think we did this practice earlier. This could be my last breath. How do I want to be with it? This could be my last breath. How do I want to be with it? And this curiosity brings a certain interest and energy and, and um, kind of a, it's a good question to kind of ponder in your mind. The, all, the other practice that's useful for sloth and torpor when we're really snagged by it is to look twice at what we feel a certain, certain boredom about. Because this is where boredom can hang out a little bit. So there's the story of boredom the concept of boredom, which is usually associated with the earlier boredom that felt similar to this. So there's that. And then there is the experience of boredom that you're having in this moment. So how do you know boredom is present? What sensations or experiences are you having that tells you this is boredom? So that kind of a curiosity and investigation can be useful. And the Buddha talks about this release being an experience of being released from prison. A sense of not being um, incarcerated, removed from things. So there's more space and a bit more light in this release. And for the restlessness and worry hindrance, one of the things you could do is focus on the inhale. You can have a mantra of inhaling and saying to yourself, relax. Exhaling and saying, let go. Simple little things to just stay with a little bit of kindness towards the hindrance. Trying to create the conditions for the release to happen. With sloth and torpor, with restlessness and worry, we can contemplate the impermanence of feeling tone. We can look at the impermanence of neutral of the Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You could be curious about, okay, so I'm restless and I'm worried, but what's the, what's the feeling tone here? And the Buddha talks about 
the release of restlessness and worry being freed from slavery or oppression. That's really strong language. But that's the experience of the release from uh, the letting go of the clinging that he, he uh, thought was a good example to share. And this is a mind that's unagitated by what's happening. And there's an inner peacefulness not dependent on the things outside to calm us down, whether it's the food or the drink or the relationship or whatever it might be. And then there's doubt, that sense of confusion, and the practice can be a focus on the inhale, which brings some energy for investigation of the experience of doubt. And I find with doubt, especially, that I almost have to uh, be a little tricky. You know, like um, sometimes I'll just say, I'll just try another position, another posture, so that it shakes things up. I find in my um, life off the cushion that working with doubt suggests to me that I need to um, just try anything just to break up, you know, just to upset that, um, interrupt that notion. Just try anything and try something different just to spin it around. Just to prove to yourself that this is not permanent. And the release of doubt is experienced as safe after a dangerous trip across the desert. We were walking on the path out here, Catherine and I, and we passed this house that had all these old boots hanging on the, standing up on the fence. And I said, oh, I I can only imagine what the journeys have been (laughs) for the people in those boots. Safe after a dangerous journey across a desert. So those are some things you can do on the cushion to kind of, when you notice that you have been, uh, that you're in a hindrance attack, that you're really caught in a story, a belief, a worry, a doubt, a perfecting, a wanting. can work with your breath and anchor your focus so that the clear scene can happen. So that there's, you're creating the conditions for clear seeing. And a second strategy is, of, is one of using the four noble truths as an inquiry. So it can be a nice, simple template to investigate when you're sitting. So the first one would be, you know, there is suffering. That's for noble truth. So you can ask yourself, how am I suffering? Am I suffering right now? Is what's happening right now, am I suffering? Second question could be, 
inquiry could be, what am I clinging to? What hindrance is predominant right now in my experience? And what is this clinging rooted in? Meaning, is it rooted in greed? Is it rooted in aversion? Is it rooted in delusion? What, what might I say if I looked a little deeper to see what this clinging is rooted in? What's the cause of suffering? There is a cause to suffering, and it's clinging. Third noble truth is there is an end to suffering. So the inquiry here could be, what needs to be known and honored in this moment? What knowing and seeing can I bow to? What hindrance can I release through kind awareness? So you're seeing what's happening and you're, you're just asking some questions. You're being curious about this experience. And there is a path to, to, to this um, liberation. The Buddha offered a path, and maybe the inquiry here is, can I bear witness to this suffering, this opposition or ambiguity? Can I bear witness with wise attention? And, and what can this suffering teach me about a boundless heart and about humanity, that what all people might be dealing with? Sometimes when we, can, we, we focus on something outside of ourselves, we can see that, oh yeah, I'm not the only one that's dealt with this kind of suffering in my life. I've actually been in some of these circles and I can hear my story through some of the ways people are sharing. This is a human condition. The offer is impersonal. The offer is impermanent. The offer is, is, is not about uh, perfecting or it's not about you. Sometimes it's just the offer. And everybody's dealing with the offer in one way or another in their lives. So those are the four noble truths. You can turn the, the four noble truths into an inquiry as you sit on your cushion when you find yourself really caught or holding tight or contracted. How am I suffering? What am I holding on to? What can I let go of? And can I, can I be kind and wise in this process? And a third strategy is to bring a sense of um, kindness and warmth, that kind of radiance that we talked about and that we're still benefiting from in this retreat. Bring that into our investigation, into our inquiry as an atmosphere as an atmosphere, as a climate, bring the warmth in, ha hold the investigation in kindness. And it's not easy sometimes because there's all the, well, well, but wait a minute, but what, but what, you know, we get, we, you know, we, I have a PhD in clinging, you know, we don't give these things up easily. 
You know, but I ask the question sometimes, what do I do with my heart when, um, you know, I'm cultivating my boundless heart and, you know, my mother um, uh, tells me not to come. She's dying, but she doesn't want me to be there. You know, because with my mother, as much as I love her and we had all this good stuff happening, but when I'm around her with my heart, she softens. And when she softens, she starts to let go. And when she lets go, it feels like death. And she wasn't having it. So my being around her wasn't what she needed, is what I needed. So what do I do with my big heart in a situation like that? You know? Or what do I do? What do I do with my heart, with my growing heart, when my 19-year-old grandson, black young man with bipolar in Los Angeles, with challenges of getting his life together, an adult now, struggling with the institutional level that you know, you know, the prison systems are on the stock market. So, you know, he's endangered. So what do I do with my heart in that situation? How do I keep my heart open? How do I not lock down into some intense place that says, you know, these are, these are things wars are made of, you know, if we can relate to that. And what do I do with my big heart, being, being here in, in England, in, in the UK, and connecting with my Sangha sibling as we share our stories, our histories, our pain, our lineage, our ancestors, and we feel the contraction of our history and our love in the soup of the Dharma? How, how do I, what do I do with that, you know? What do I do with my big heart sometimes when my commitment is not to close it? What do I do about that? So love has to be bigger, and the atmosphere that this is held in has to be um, big enough to greet the disturbance and the quaking heart that is inevitable with the, light, with the offers of life. You know? I can't change a lot of those situations. But how do I stand in it without uh, crunching with a sense of release and clear seeing and knowing? That's the practice that we're all on. And it's not an easy path, but it's something that we can do. Nelson Mandela said, when we can sit in the face of insanity and dislike and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. Then we are free. The, the, the freedom to, when we get that we, we, we you know, we can't, you know, make it, re, we can't make it release, we can't always make it better. Getting that, the clear seeing and knowing of that is the release. That's the conditions of release.
So it's not about just letting go. It's the quality of the atmosphere that, the, that, that allows the release to soften. So there's a, a poem I would like to um, kind of close with because I think it really speaks to this, um, this kind of hardening that, that life offers and that we feel in our practice, these, 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 these senses, this sense of so, such solidity and um, how the softening that we can offer this solidity actually allows for the release to happen. How we hold uh, the solidity actually helps, helps us. And we've been working on this most of the week. This is uh, from the play After the Fall, written by Arthur Miller. And, it's, and let me, let's see, where do we start? Okay. I think it's a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread, the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cut his finger off. Within a week, you're climbing over corpse of children bombed in a subway. What hope can there be if this is so. I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream returned every night until I dared not go to sleep, and I grew quite ill. I dreamt that I had a child, and even the, the dream, in the dream I saw, it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap again, clutched at my clothes, until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps I could sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life in one's arms. So this capacity to let go uh, is uh, the, the, the conditions that support the release uh, uh, is useful when the heart is in, in the boundless heart, the radiant heart is a part of the atmosphere. And that we are not making release happen, we're creating the conditions for release to happen. And the radiant heart, the kiss, brings a certain um, warmth to the equation. And the truth about kindness is that it melts separation, the sense of separation, and it supports a gentle surrender, a letting go. And the Buddha said that in the end, these things matter the most. How well did you love? How fully did you live? And how deeply did you let go? So let's sit a minute.
what matters most is how well did you love, how fully did you live, and how deeply did you let go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.